Well, what's going on with the Islamic State and all that stuff out there and uh, comparing it with, with Bible prophecy? Of course, that's what we're going to do. But before we get into that, I want to just emphasize what I think we all know already, and that is that the real intention of Bible prophecy is not to predict world events in advance. Remember the Lord Jesus said, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, then you will know that I am he. It is uh, it's fallacious to think that God has sort of told us what's going to happen ahead of time and you can just see it all slotting into place. I know that is what some think, but um, I don't think that is the intention of Bible prophecy. The idea is that we are to live every day as if Jesus is coming back today. And that's what I try to say to our children every morning. Let's hope that Jesus comes back today. Because we're told to be as men who wait for their Lord. And the Lord says that if the, the, uh, the uh, good man of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would have watched and, and waited for the thief. Watch you, therefore, because you don't know what hour he comes. So exactly because we don't know what hour he comes, we are to watch. And so, therefore, you may think, well, why are we having this session then? Well, why are we having this session is not because I think that uh, the situation with there with the Islamic State is sort of fulfilling Bible prophecy and therefore we can uh, be sure that Jesus is going to come back soon. But it's simply that despite all I've just said, despite all I've just said, I do really think that the correspondence between Bible prophecy and what is going on in the land promised to Abraham at the moment is astounding. It is incredible. And I can't help but want to share those ideas with you uh, because there is a very strong correspondence. But of course, I may have it wrong. Or you, whatever view you've got, you also might have it wrong. There I was uh, in 1983, that is, at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, uh, dogmatically uh, on about Russia and the Soviet Union invading Israel and uh, no way we're going to live to the year 2000 and, and so forth. And, you know, I was wrong, wasn't I? And so were many of us. Uh, and so what are we doing having another crack at it? Well, we're simply saying that we may have it wrong and no dogmatism at all like we had in the past because we got it wrong in the past. Uh, but all the same, it seems that there is an uncanny and exact similarity and correspondence between the Bible prophecies and the situation out there at the moment. So then, these guys have uh, arisen very recently, and whether or not the entity now known as the Islamic State is going to be you know, the thing to look for, I don't know. Uh, but I would say that an Islamic State an Islamic State is going to have to arise in the territory promised to, to Abraham and finally dominate uh, Israel uh, before the Lord Jesus comes. And that can happen at any moment. It really can. And you've probably seen brethren pointing out how if you look at a map of Assyria and a map of what they are calling Sham or Al-Sham, the Levant, the uh, area that they're claiming as their caliphate, it's, uh, or their kingdom, if you like, it's a pretty, pretty good, uh, it's a pretty good fit. But they are the latter-day Assyrian. 
and uh, I've put up here one of their war songs. You can find all this on their various websites. You can find it on their YouTube channels. Uh, they're talking about wiping out all the borders and establishing their uh, Islamic State in the territory of the land promised to Abraham. Well, Assyria is the basis of so many, so many prophecies about the last days, that the Lord Jesus will arise and shepherd his flock, uh, and he will be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be, the Lord Jesus will be our peace when the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land, when he tramples our territory. So then, without any question, there is to be a latter day Assyrian. And who is standing there in the territory of historical Assyria? Well, the Islamic State. The Syrians before and the Philistines or the Palestinians behind will devour Israel with open mouth. It's like this uh, entity of the last days is likened to a beast that's got um, two jaws. The jaws, one is the Syrians, the other is the Palestinians. That's going to calm down upon Israel. Well, you can see that Syria is now, if you like, the Islamic State, and uh, the Palestinians are there in, in the land, as we know, Hamas, uh, wanting to come down upon Israel. Now, <clears throat> the uh, people running the Islamic State are, are, are not just um, thuggy boys. These people are scholars of the, of the Quran. These people are highly religious people. And they are consciously seeking to replicate, to replicate the behaviour of the historical Assyria. For example, taking Yazidi women and their captives uh, captive and parading them around the place. Admittedly, they're doing it on the back of pickup trucks and stuff like that. But this is exactly in imitation of the Assyrians taking captives, parading them, uh, and so forth. And one defector from the Islamic State says they're bringing in people from other countries and different nationalities um, into the territories that they have captured. Well, that again is a repeat of Assyria. They're very into uh, beheading, as, as you know, when you encounter the unbelievers on the battlefield, strike off their heads. And Islam is actually the only religion which, or current religion, which, or major religion, which actually has beheading as part of its credo. You think of Revelation 20 verse 4 about those who will be beheaded uh, by the latter-day beast. Now, it was only, uh, beheading was only for Roman citizens in the first century, and so I would say that uh, the, the emphasis in Revelation 20 upon beheading being a, a characteristic of the latter-day beast would uh, well, certainly significant in the, uh, in, in the face of, uh, of uh, the Islamic State. Daniel 11, the, the king of the north, which again is Assyria, will have power over the treasures of gold and silver. Well, they captured the bank in Mosul. They've got billions, trillions in, uh, in, in gold bullion. Go through Ezekiel 38, as you're probably aware, uh, this whole uh, prophecy there is full of allusion to Assyria. I will put hooks into your jaws and will bring you forth, you and your army. This is about Assyria. In Isaiah, hooks in their nose, bridle in your lips. Um, 
Assyria was to be visited, Gog is to be visited, um, Gog comes to take spoil and to take wealth. This is right out of Isaiah 10 about taking spoil and prey from, from Israel by Assyria. And God will plead with them, with Gog, with pestilence and with blood, enter into judgment with him with great hailstones, fire, and so forth. This is exactly the language about Assyria. I will magnify myself against Gog, I will magnify myself against Assyria. So however you want to take, however you want to take um, Gog in, uh, in, uh, in Ezekiel 38, it is based around, it is based around the historical Assyria. And we're seeing Assyria reforming. Now, there was a Gog in the Bible, and Gog is a, is a person, he's an individual. Um, and he was an Israelite who went away from Israel and lived, uh, really, on the banks of the Euphrates. And that's exactly where the Islamic State have, have come from. When we read in the Old Testament about the, the land or the earth, you're reading this Hebrew word Eretz, which can be translated land, as in the land of Israel, or it can mean the whole planet. But I, I suggest that in many of these prophecies, it is talking specifically about the land promised to Abraham. So Go comes from his homeland in the uttermost parts of the north. Well, the uttermost parts of the north is not Russia. The uttermost parts of the north, if you want to look at it on a literal global scale, would be, uh, would be the Arctic. And uh, that's not what it's talking about, I suggest. The, the the uttermost part of the, the north, as in the northern part of the land promised to Abraham, is the Euphrates River. And that is effectively the boundary of the Islamic State. Well, Daniel 2 then has got the image, as you know, standing on its feet and with its ten toes. And it's destroyed by a little stone hitting it on the feet and destroying it and setting up God's kingdom here on the earth. And we're familiar with that. But it's, the point seems to have been missed that the whole image stands erect and stands complete in the last days. When the stone comes and destroys, it doesn't just destroy the feet, it destroys every one of the metals. The whole image stands complete in the last days. So whatever continuous historic uh, fulfillment these prophecies may have had, Daniel 2 for example, I, I wouldn't argue with whatever suggestion you come up with. But I would say that in these last days, and when Jesus comes, we are living at the climax of history. We are living at the climax of prophecy. And that climax involves this entity standing dominating the land, the Eretz of Israel, in the last days. And of course, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw the image, he saw a, it was a dream, because he was worried about himself. And as happens, when you, you have a dream, when you're worried about yourself, you see yourself. And he saw himself. This image was him, and Daniel says that. You are the head of gold. That's your face, O king, that you saw. That's you. So actually, this entity will stand in the form of a person. It will be headed up by a, an individual, a charismatic individual, and it will dominate the land. Now, even if you want to look at the his continuous historical sort of workout of this, uh, this, this uh, image, 
if you take these nations not as world powers but as referring specifically to nations or empires that dominated the land of Israel, for one thing the whole thing is in proportion. The head is Babylon who dominated the land for 70 years and then you've got the uh, Medes and Persians who dominated for a bit longer, then you've got the Greeks and the Romans and then you've got a gap in fulfilment, a hiatus in fulfilment, until the legs part, sorry, the feet part of iron and part of clay. Now, Israel ceased from being a nation at the hands of the Romans, and they were not a nation in the land, and so there was this gap in fulfilment until the last days, when this iron and clay situation is going to arise. So even looking at it over continuous history, it's uh, it makes more sense to see this as talking about uh, entities, let's say empires, who have dominated the land promised to Abraham. Not the earth, as in the whole planet, because no one empire has ever dominated the whole planet. So then, in the last days, when the stone hits the image on the, on the feet, uh, there's ten toes. And as you probably know, the uh, four beasts of Daniel 7 are developing these four metals, and there the point is made, there's more detail each time, uh, that there are ten horns, and that there will be one specific little horn, one amongst them who will be very charismatic, very loud-mouthed, and so on. Um, <clears throat> Incidentally, if you try to create, to replicate this uh, image, let's say you really did get some gold and silver, brass, iron and so forth and try to, try to create this image, try to make a, a model with the proportions of a human body, it would fall over. It would fall over because the specific gravity of, of gold is so much higher, I can see John smiling, he probably, probably got it all wrong, but as soon as he says I got it right, so that's the main thing. Um, uh, it's so much higher than, the, um, than the, the clay at the bottom of it. So the whole thing would fall over. In other words, the whole of human history is propped up by God. It is actually against, it's against any, any sense that the whole thing has gone on for so long. It really is. Anyway, um, <clears throat> That, uh, that whole sort of situation there would, would point forward to some entity that's going to stand up dominating the land promised to Abraham in the last days and dominating God's people Israel. And the Quran talks about how in the last days, and so much of the Quran says that, that it's talking about the latter day destruction of Israel, the uh, wicked people of the book, um, that the enemies of Israel, the triumphant enemies, that is the, uh, the Muslims basically, will be like a solid cemented structure. And as Harry Whitaker pointed out many years ago, when we read about the iron mixed with clay, the uh, word mixed there is the Hebrew word Arab. Now, the Hamas Covenant, which is the basis of the PLO movement, and it's the basis of the Palestinian Covenant uh, as well, and also the stuff that uh, the uh, Islamic State are churning out, they all use this phrase, that the aim of our caliphate, the aim of our kingdom that we aim to establish in the 
in Sham or the Levant or the land promised to Abraham from the river of Egypt up to Euphrates uh, will have Allah as its target and the prophet is its model. In other words, we want to shape ourselves into the image or the model of the prophet. Which all rather helps us understand why this entity that stands upon the land in the last days to dominate it is in the form of a person. And I wonder if the two legs, two feet, talk about the Sunni and the Shias, I don't know. They're all on about Arab unity. The Palestinian Covenant's on about it, the Hamas Covenant uh, and the uh, Islamic State are on and on about unity. Comprehensive Arab unity. And uh, of course this is the idea of the, uh, the iron and clay, that they, they will be mixed together, but they will not cleave one to another. Well, as I've said, the Daniel 2 image gives birth to the, uh, the four beasts. And again, the, the four beasts all exist together in the last day, because at Judgment Day, the beasts have their dominion taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a season and time. So again, it, all these elements are in existence in the final entity that uh, arises. Now, the beasts arise out of the sea in the beginning of Daniel 7 and later on it says they arise out of the land. And there is a, a, a concept that, that's very common and you can read about this in the Islamic State's uh, Dabiq, that's their magazine, you can read it online in English, um, the, the Sahwa, the awakening, that there has been this awakening in the Arab world and there is now this specific awakening as the Islamic State see it and this arising and of course that is what has happened out of the, the deserts really of uh, Iraq and Syria these guys have arisen and they will change times and laws interesting that the Islamic State theologically differ with more standard forms of Islam in that they seem to think that they have sort of inspiration from God as we would uh, see it uh, to come out with new kind of hadith, new kind of interpretations and changing times, well they have insisted that uh, their time zone, Mecca time zone is to dominate the world and they built these uh, uh, clocks which are in conscious imitation of Big Ben in London this entity arises out of the sea, and I wonder if the sea actually is a reference to the laver. Don't forget this is Daniel as a priest writing. And it's clarified in Daniel 7, where we, verse 17, where the four beasts, uh, which are told, we're told arise out of the sea, we're told they arise out of the earth, or the land, the land promised to Abraham. So these entities don't include Australia, England, or Russia. They are entities which arise out of the land, the land promised to Abraham. And by peace they shall destroy many. Well, you know that Hebrew doesn't have uh, vowels, or biblical Hebrew didn't have vowels in it, and uh, that is true of, uh, of Arabic, likewise. Well, the word for peace, as you know, in Hebrew is shalom, and in Arabic, very similar, salam. Forget about the, uh, forget about the vowels, You've got S-L-M. Now you think of the word Islam, you've got the same, S-L-M, if you forget about the vowels. So Islam and peace, 
in, in its radical sense, uh, as, from a linguistic point of view, it's the same thing. By peace, many shall be destroyed. And of course, that's what uh, is so irritating, isn't it? When you hear these uh, jihadists, etc., talking about peace and all this kind of stuff, and then you know, cutting a guy's throat in the name of peace. That very much speaks to me of, of Islam. Now, the final form of these beasts is so terrible that the whole world is in shock horror. There will be a time of trouble such as never was for God's people, and that includes the, the Holocaust in Europe uh, of the 1940s. But that is nothing compared to what is to come in the last days. It was so terrifying and exceedingly strong. In Revelation 13, the same beast kind of appears in slightly different form with more detail. Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And the beast that you meet in Revelation 13 has got all the elements of the beasts of Daniel 7. He's like a leopard, his feet are like the feet of a bear, his mouth is like the mouth of a lion. So it's as if all the, the beasts of Daniel 7 are rolled into one final beast. And we're told it's got seven heads and ten horns. Which actually, if you look at the, the four beasts of Daniel 7, that's the total number of all their heads and horns put together. So this beast that finally well, you've got in Revelation is the, the summary of all Israel's previous dominators, persecutors, abusers. It all comes together in this awful uh, latter-day entity, which is totally unlike any other entity that's ever been. That's my difficulty in thinking that it applies to Rome, because the Roman Empire was not so radically different to the Greek Empire, Babylonians, Assyrians, etc., that went before them. This is, all this language is talking about something radically different that cannot be fought with, that cannot be engaged with, and you know what that really implies? It implies that really the, the West, who are currently the uh, sort of balancing factor, that the West is going to have to be eclipsed. They will no longer be the power brokers. This awful system is going to dominate the land, the land promised to Abraham, and God's people, the Jews. And that, that's bad news for, you know, people sitting here. That... All the, you know, in all the recent decades, it is the West who've been the restraining power, they've been the world's policemen, etc. That's going to finish. That could happen from a number of reasons. It could be internal growth of Islam uh, within you know, Western countries. That's certainly on the, on, the, on the agenda. It could be a financial crisis. It could be some form of uh, plague that breaks out. It could be all sorts of things. It could be a huge defeat that they suffer, military defeat. It could be that these guys get some technology which is in a totally different paradigm so that the West is saying, well, we can't fight them. Who is able to make war with these people? We are outclassed, we can't even touch them. And so they have to make some agreement to let them get on with what they want to do in Israel. And Israel is a very small pawn to sacrifice in the game. So I'm afraid that as I see these prophecies, they require the eclipse of the West. You get that idea, I think, also in Revelation 9, where you read about how these huge numbers of, of horsemen are released from the, the Euphrates River. And I take this as being 
uh, an allusion to the, the horsemen of the, of the Assyrian invasion. That it's uh, claimed that there were 200,000 horsemen uh, that, that came against Israel. Well, now you've got in Revelation 9, the, the smoke from the incense altar arises, and because of that, there's this release of, of all these horsemen that were bounded by the river Euphrates. And where have the Islamic State come from? From the Euphrates. What was this restraint? Well, it's a, a miracle, really, that Israel has survived since 1948. Surrounded by the enemies, why weren't they wiped out? It wasn't because of the strength of the IDF. It was a miracle. It was God restraining their enemies. And we're told that because of the, the result of prayer, our prayers for the second coming, the smoke arises from the incense altar and then the restraint is lifted and all these horsemen pour over the Euphrates. Remember, the Euphrates is the northern border of the land promised to Abraham. This is an invasion of the biblical land of Israel. Not the territory that is now known as Israel, as in the, the uh, state of the Republic of Israel, but uh, the, uh, the, the northern border of the land promised to Abraham. I can see horsemen, uh, etc. These are all uh, screenshots that I took off various Islamic State uh, videos. Uh, they're consciously alluding. They, these guys are very into history. They're very into symbology. They're consciously alluding to the uh, horse uh, cavalry invasions uh, of Israel. So you can see, it's not very clear, but uh, you see the Euphrates River this Euphrates Tig Tigris Basin, uh, this is exactly where the Islamic State have, have come from and they're, as it were, pouring towards Israel. The Western media, like any media, gives a very biased kind of picture. Uh, they only report what they want to report. Uh, it's very clear that there is a desire by the Islamic State to get hold of Jerusalem. This is very clear, and we'll touch on this later. Um, part of that desire is not simply because they're jealous of Israel's prosperity, uh, but they also genuinely believe that they must judge the Jews. So much uh, is, is, is written in the Quran about this, that the true Muslim must judge the apostate, especially the people of the book, the, the Jews, that they must uh, punish the Jews because as they claim the Jews have twisted the scriptures, uh, they have twisted the Old Testament, uh, switched everything round, for example, the, the uh, account of Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, they say the Jews twisted that round, but we would say there's the Muslims who twisted it all round, so that uh, uh, Ishmael is the, the seed of promise and Isaac is the somewhat rejected one um, <clears throat> and they accuse the Jews likewise. So they're absolutely sure that they are required to judge Israel. Our eyes are on Al-Quds, that's what Arabs call Jerusalem. And uh, <clears throat> in the October issue of the ISIS magazine we perform jihad here while our eyes are upon Al-Quds and they've put up big uh, hoardings in the areas that they control. <coughs> Our eyes are on Al-Quds. In other words, Jerusalem is the aim that we're going for. In Ezekiel 38, they come against the navel or the high place of the land, which I suggest is Jerusalem. 
These guys are very into black flags. They are very into consciously trying to fulfill their own prophecies. The Quran and the Hadith, which is like the extra uh, interpretations of the Quran, uh, they are very interested in enforcing the fulfillment of these, of these prophecies. So when they, you see these pictures of, of the Islamic State carrying black flags, they're doing this in order to fulfill their own prophecies which talks about armies carrying black flags coming from Kurdistan, which could well be Afghanistan. Um, no power will be able to stop them, and they will finally reach the holy place in Jerusalem where they will erect their flags. The final battle will be waged by the Muslim faithful coming on the backs of horses carrying black banners. They will stand on the east side of the Jordan River and will wage war that the earth has never seen before. The true Messiah, who is the Islamic Mahdi, will defeat Europe, will lead his army of Turks, uh, so forth. Now, <clears throat> that's why they're carrying these black flags, because they want to consciously fulfill the, uh, the Quran and Hadith prophecies about men carrying black flags, defeating the West, or defeating their enemies, and taking Jerusalem. If you see the black banners coming from Khorasan, go to them immediately. Because indeed amongst them is the caliph, the leader. Like caliph would be like king in English, and caliphate would be like kingdom. Now, there's been no caliph in the Muslim world since 1924, until last year, al-Baghdadi, the leader of the Islamic State, declared himself the caliph. And another of their things out of the hadith says, there can be no true jihad against Israel until there is a caliph. Well, they've got a caliph now, so they can have their true jihad against Israel. The black flags will come from the east, led by men with long hair and beards. Well, you must grow a beard in the areas that the Islamic State control. Um, even in the Hamas covenant, the Palestinian covenant, we strive to raise the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine. And so, time and again, looking at their publicity material, you see these black flags. The black flag of jihad. It's being displayed, and probably you in Sydney, for all I know, uh, it's certainly being displayed in sort of Muslim areas uh, of Western Europe. It's all over the place. This is their sign. This is their calling card. Now, I've suggested then that the beast refers in its latter-day application, whatever continuous historical application it may have had, I, I'm very open to that and don't, don't doubt it. Just like the continuous historical application of Daniel 2 is all well and good. But the whole image stands complete in the last days when prophecy comes to its climax uh, and human history comes to its uh, final, uh, final climax. Um, so I would say that the, the beast in its latter-day application applies to some entity that will dominate the land, the land promised to Abraham from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt. And so when we read that this, this beast has got a mark, well, what is that mark? Well, the Islamic State do have their calling card, as it were, and it's this roughly drawn circle. It's intentionally not a perfect circle. It's intentionally a hand-drawn, uh, slightly uh, inaccurately drawn circle, 
with what's written inside it, that there is one God, Allah, and uh, everything must be subservient to him and to his messenger, Muhammad. Well, they believe that this is the, uh, the, the seal of Muhammad, and that's what they stamp on all their documents, is what they've got on those, on those uh, flags, etc. And they call their flag the, uh, the eagle, which, as you'd be aware, is uh, a common symbol for the, the enemies of Israel. They themselves say in the Quran that the mark, that the mark of Muhammad will be on the foreheads of his people in the last days. It's all so similar, so similar to the language of Revelation. So when you look at these people and then these pictures, these stills from their videos with their black flags, you will see on their battle dress they've got this seal. You spot it on the, all of them. They've all got this seal. This is the seal of Muhammad. And the mark is on their hands and on their foreheads. In their fighters that have been captured, they've got, they've got this, this thing, this uh, seal of Muhammad, on their rings, on their hands. It's the number of a man. Now, Muhammad in Greek, Muhammad, um, adding it up there, comes a 666. Now, don't scribble uh, don't, don't um, gematria, whereby you know, each... Letter of the alpha, each letter of the alphabet has got a numerical value. Don't scribble it too quickly because actually the Bible itself uses that. Uh, talk about that in more detail later. The other thing the Islamic State have done recently is to issue their own coinage. And their coins are based on the gold standard. In other words, the, the gold coins are literally made of gold because, I mean, they've got, you know, a couple of trillion you know, dollars worth of the stuff. Um, and the silver, brass, etc. There's a few interesting things about their coins. Uh, you would expect to find the, uh, the great mosque of, uh, of Mecca on it, but there isn't. It's got the Al-Aqsa mosque, that's the great mosque in Jerusalem, on the coins. And reading through their publications, and it's all in English, you can read it, if you know where to look, you can read their stuff online, they are reinterpreting uh, Islam pretty radically, and they're taking the focus off Mecca, and they're putting it on Jerusalem. And they're wanting to say that Jerusalem is actually now the most holy city. And that is understandable, because where's Mecca? Mecca's in Saudi Arabia. Who's bombing the life out of Islamic State at the moment? Saudi Arabia, Saudi jets, etc., supporting the West. So Saudi Arabia is their sworn enemy, and they can't even go and do their, business, you know, their religious stuff and their homage in Mecca anyway. They can't go to Saudi Arabia. They're at war with Saudi Arabia. So they're putting all the emphasis on, uh, on the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, which is also not yet in their hands, but it's definitely their agenda is to get it. If you want any clues about what to be looking for, I would suggest that one thing to look for is an increasing focus not only on Israel, but specifically on Jerusalem and specifically on the Temple Mount, because that's what they want. The other weird thing about their coins 
is that they are conscious imitations of Israeli coins. Oh, right, you can see from the slide. There's another one. Look at those ears of corn. At the same angle. What this, they're conscious, you know, as I say, they're so into uh, symbolism. They're so into uh, significance of, you know, everything. It, it seems to me that they are trying to say, yeah, well, we're not going to need any Israeli coinage because we are, our eyes are on Al-Quds, our eyes are on Jerusalem. We're aiming to take over that country. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and Ethiopians will be at his steps. So it goes on, does it not? Um, when you come to Revelation, I've said that the beasts, the beasts of Revelation are based on the beast of Daniel 7 and that I think that they are talking about this latter-day uh, Islamic entity to dominate the land. But Revelation is not only about beasts. You've got seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials. And just summing up how I see it, um, you've got the seven seals, you've got judgment upon the earth or the land. Again, I see it as the land promised to Abraham. And then after that, there's the sealing of the 144,000 who are Jews from the 12 tribes. There are the judgments that come upon the land, some Jews repent, turn to Christ, they're sealed. And then there's the seven trumpet judgments, which affect the impenitent Jews. And then finally, there's the seven vials of judgment upon anyone who's left in the land, including the, uh, the invaders. The language used throughout the seven vials, seven trumpets, and, and seven vials, the seals, trumpets, and vials, is so similar to what's in the Quran. Now, I read through the Quran. Uh, towards the end of last year. Uh, I've read it before, but I've read it quite carefully a, a second time and quite a bit of the Hadith. You never get to the end of the Hadith, there's a huge, huge amount of it. But it just struck me how similar the language is. Very similar. That this idea of seven uh, series of judgments. Well, seven military expeditions were made by, uh, by, by Muhammad, so they claim. Seven battles, there's to be seven judgments upon Israel by the Muslims in the last days. Um, different parts of the land of the people of the book are to be cut off and destroyed, etc. It's all the language out of Revelation. And because these guys are so into consciously fulfilling their own prophecies they are going to end up fulfilling those prophecies that we have there in Revelation. It's not happening yet, but it's all signed and sealed to happen. It talks about blowing the mountains away, tearing the sky asunder. Uh, the people of the book, we shall test you with fear, hunger, loss of wealth, lives and fruits so that when afflicted with calamity, they will say, truly to Allah we belong, and truly to him we shall return. So they see themselves, the Muslims see themselves, as charged by God with the need to judge Israel. That's so why when you look at the sheer barbarity of what these people do, uh, frankly, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the motivation to do that, just on the basis of wanting money, you know, spoil and prey. You'd need some religious motivation to make it that crazy. Uh, and they've got it. Because of the wrongdoing of the Jews, we have prepared for those of them who disbelieve a painful doom. It's absolutely stirring up absolute pathological hatred 
against, uh, against Israeli people, Jewish people. O ye who believe, fight those of the disbelievers who are near you. Let them find harshness in you. Then seized I those who disbelieved, and how intense was my abhorrence. It's all talking about the Jews. A large amount of the Quran is just, just absolute ranting against Jewish people. I mean, really and truly, they, they lock people up in jail for you know, radical clerics and that, for inciting hatred against, uh, against uh, other people. But the Quran itself is doing this without any question. The other thing I noticed is that a lot of the descriptions of the faithful that you've got in, in Revelation are alluded to in the, uh, in the Quran. Uh, Revelation says 144,000 follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And yet Muhammad is supposed to have had 144,000 followers. There's supposed to be 144,000 prophets in Islam. So these 144,000 who follow the Lamb are being purposefully contrasted with the 144,000 who are supposed to have followed Muhammad wherever he went. Now the significance of all this, I feel, is that really in the very last days, and it may literally be the last 72 hours or whatever before Jesus comes back, that, that may be what the, the last days refers to, the significance, I, I feel, is that the whole of Revelation could then come true, could then come true specifically from the, from the viewpoint of the uh, Muslims, the radical Muslims, fulfilling the whole of Revelation to the letter in a literalistic, literal sort of way. I mean, a, a, another one, in Revelation 6 verse 6, one of the judgments that's poured out upon the land of Israel uh, says, and, and don't uh, judge the land, but don't hurt the trees. Well, that's right out of the Hadith in this book 19 about jihad and uh, various rules about how to carry out jihad, where they're told specifically, when you carry out jihad, uh, this holy war against uh, your enemies, uh, don't, don't hurt the trees. Don't burn the trees with fire. Well, that's exactly what Revelation 6 verse 6 says that there will be this judgment upon the land, but the trees won't be hurt. This can't be, it's too much, too freaky to say there's a coincidence. What I'm saying is that once they really go into the land, and frankly you could turn on the telly or you know, look at your phone or whatever, coming out of this hall, and find that, wow, it started. You know, breaking news. That the, the, there's been this huge invasion of the land of Israel. Uh, once they start, and they're going to try to follow all these laws that they've got in their own hadith and their own Quran, etc. You're going to have Bible prophecy just fulfilled right in front of you. We come back to what I said at the start that Jesus gives us these prophecies so that when it happens, then we shall know. It's not as if that you see it all falling into place ahead of time, so much as when it actually happens, you're going to say, Wow, this is really it. So I, I think that it wouldn't even depend too much on your ability to interpret Bible prophecy. Just a basic awareness of the text of the book of Revelation would be enough. You then see, wow, the whole thing is, is falling into place right in front of my eyes. What they are doing out there is exactly, literally fulfilling Revelation. So we come back to where I started, that we should be living as if 
Jesus is coming back. And that is a, that, that's a terribly difficult thing to do. I mean, it affects you know, emotionally and financially, all sorts of decisions that you make have got this thing over them that I must live as if Jesus is coming today. Uh, and uh, let's say whether or not he does or not, uh, it's neither here nor there. Of course, we can fall asleep in Jesus, which is uh, effective, effectively, of course, his, his second coming for each of us. But the essence is, no matter if I got it right or wrong, or you got it right and I got it wrong, or whatever, uh, it doesn't really matter. The, the essence is that we love him and are looking forward to him. Because why would you look forward to someone? Because you love them. And it's as simple as that. And because we are looking forward to salvation. I was trying to say this morning, we should be humbly confident that if he comes now, I will be there. By his grace, not that I should be, but by his grace that I will be there. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful hope to have. And if that's really where we stand, we will look forward to his coming and will earnestly seek his coming. So I guess you've got all sorts of disagreements and uh, doubts and fears that you want to... Uh, want to give, so you're very welcome to uh, have your say. Well, I don't think it refers to Moscow and, and Tobolsk. Uh, I was one of the few Christadelphians probably who's been in Tobolsk, and uh, John Thomas in Alpha's Israel talks about the great Siberian metropolis. Uh, there's a little uh, pokey little railway station, and there's a pokey little hotel next to it, and uh, it's not a great, what he calls the, the great Siberian metropolis of Tobolsk, because it's, it's fiction, man. It's okay. not there. Well, Ezekiel 38, all the, all the nations or areas that are listed there, every one of them is in Genesis 10. What's Genesis 10? It's the table of nations after the flood. Now, I take this thing about Eretz, or the earth, referring to the land promised to Abraham, I, I take that pretty widely, not everywhere, but pretty widely. I would argue that um, there was a local flood, and the, that local flood was what hit the land promised to Abraham, from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt. And then after the flood, you've then got this list of the children of, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which are referring to the nations and their locations within that area. So then, I don't see, for example, that it's talking about black people in Africa or Anglo-Saxon people. I don't think that's on the agenda at all. The purpose of Genesis, I mean, Moses wrote Genesis under inspiration while Israel were in the wilderness to explain to Israel where they were coming from and where they were going to and what their history was, what their culture was, where they'd come from, what they, their roots were, because they didn't know. They'd been 430 years in Egypt. And uh, so he's telling them, look, in the land promised to our father Abraham, from the Genesis 10, there's all these people. So then, when you encounter those names again in Ezekiel 38... I would say that this is a description of peoples within the land from Mr. Abraham. I don't think it talks about Russia uh, at all. Well, I, I, 
I wouldn't. I, I don't know, but I would say that they are. Uh, as I remember, the the way that the uh, there's ten nations listed in Ezekiel 38, if you include Tarshish. Um, <clears throat> those ten nations, I would tie up with the ten horns of the beast, the ten toes of the image, the ten nations of Psalm 83. It's always ten. Now, I'm not saying that it will literally be ten nations. I'm not sure it is. But as I uh, remember, in Ezekiel 38, it, it goes around clockwise, roughly, if you can imagine where the nations are, from north, south, east, uh, sorry, from north uh, down to the south and then back up again to the north. But the, the nations are simply listed to give the impression of all nations around Israel being led by a charismatic individual called Gog against Israel in the last days whether you're supposed to interpret each of them and say, ah, yeah, Meshach refers to this one and Tuba refers to that one, I personally I doubt. So you, you think Russia has nothing to do with the Zedekiah? No, I don't. Rosh, I would understand simply as how it's translated in the vast majority of places in the Bible, uh, chief prince. And it's talking about Gog. Gog is the Rosh, or the chief prince, well, of, of this confederacy of nations. So Ezekiel 38 is talking about an individual, Gog, who is the, the Rosh, the chief prince, of those ten nations that are in the geographical compass sense surrounding Israel. That's my take on Ezekiel 38. Go to Tobolsk, then you realise it. No, no, I just asked you, why does Well, the, the difficulty in taking any any other way is that one would then have to go to a load of outside history to try to figure uh, where those nations are today. And I, I don't think anyone really can. Huh? I don't think anyone really can. Where is, you know, if, if Meshach and Tubal were sons of Noah, descendants of Noah, who were somewhere in the land promised to Abraham, well, where exactly they are, I, I don't know. And I don't think it's that important because I think... The ten is not literal. Duncan, yeah. when you spoke about the image, and the, um, it's Christ that describes the multiple Yep. No, it's the second coming of Jesus. Yeah. Duncan, I think... Uh, in exploring the positive aspects of the collapse of Daniel's image, we can believe with a great height and confidence that the image collapsed and uh, became as the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away mm -hmm. so that no place was found for them. And that translates, I believe, into the redemption aspects of Boaz and Ruth, where oh, Ruth came across from Moab. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was threshing. Naomi said to Ruth, he's threshing tonight, go and join him. But wash yourself and perfume yourself. Don't lie beside the man smelling like a heap of barley or any of it. And that applies to the bride of Christ as we prepare ourselves for the coming of our great redeemer. Whatever happens to these nations mm -hmm. is of no consequence to the God of Israel. 
Yep, thanks for that. In the, re in the rejection of um, Egypt of the Muslim Brotherhood, does that tell us that Egypt doesn't want to belong to the Arabs? Well, Egypt and Iran or Persia uh, clearly have a part to play, but my point is that they are outside the land promised to Abraham. So is Turkey, for that matter. Uh, that's not to say they don't have a part to play. I'm sure Iran particularly would, would, would have a part to play in beating up Israel. I'm sure they couldn't hold themselves back. But um, I'm just saying that that may be the burden of other Bible prophecies. But this ten-nation business, the idea of the, uh, the entity, as I would call it, of the, the beast, etc., the image, I don't think that that includes Iran, I don't think it includes Egypt, but I'm sure they have a role to play. We have a journal, Australia has a journalist in prison in Egypt. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Yeah. For speaking yeah. uh, out on telling news through Al Jazeera, Mm -hmm. which is the Qatar-related um, news service. And Australians are wondering why Egypt won't allow him to be free. But that was to do with the Muslim Brotherhood, mm -hmm. wasn't it? And they reject that now. <coughs> no. Mm -hmm. Okay, anything, anybody else? Yeah. Most probably you're aware of Isaac Newton saying about prophecy that it is there not that we can foretell the future, but when it does happen, mm -hmm. we are aware that God is in control. Exactly. And I think that's a very good basis on which to judge prophecy. And we may or may not be able to guess or accurately work out what a certain prophecy means, but still telling us that God is in control. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Any, any thoughts, uh, Duncan, on the um, the Hezbollah Iran um, part of this confederacy? I mean, I, I always think of Psalm 83 as being a, a good starting point for mm -hmm. uh, maybe the, the, the first, you know, where the, the, the Jews need um, to be helped to turn to God. So therefore, something has to take place mm -hmm. to. Um, in that process, but it, with all that goes on and things change and all the emphasis now on Ukraine and Russia, but you can't around still there at uh, Hezbollah, who seems to be very quiet in a sense. But mm. you, 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 you sense that's just maybe part of that confederacy of. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure about Iran, to be honest with you. I, I wouldn't say I've looked at it close enough. It, they obviously have a, a, a part to play, and a prophetic part to play. Um, but I'm, yeah, I, 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 wouldn't, I haven't got any great uh, insight on that one, I'm afraid. Maybe somebody else has. Um, well, I'd like to just, as we sort of were talking about Kerlings, I'd like to just uh, conclude with a bit of a, a warning about prophecy, um, as well as uh, just an encouraging little story, if I can, if I can find it. Um, oh, there it is. James Rafton Smallwood. Now, he's a bit of old England, if there ever was. 
in uh, just a little town just out of Manchester in the UK. And uh, <clears throat> we were advertising Bibles, the NEV Bibles, um, and we had a request from this gentleman and uh, sent him his Bible. And he, uh, and he then requested Bible Basics and uh, sent that to him and uh, he expressed a lot of interest. And he was, uh, I think he was 96 years old when I met him and baptized him. Now, in the NEV Bible, and actually in the Bible Basics, it doesn't use the word Christadelphian. And he had not picked up that I was Christadelphian. So he, he, I went to see him, and he, I think he's the only 96-year-old who doesn't need glasses. Uh, he's an incredible, incredible guy. And he, uh, he said, well, I wanted a new Bible because the Bible I've used all my life, I was given as a Sunday school prize in 1935 um, in the Methodist Sunday school. And, well, we chatted, and... Um, he said, well, I was a conscientious objector in the Second World War, and he said, I, I, God has led me in my life backwards and forwards with a group of people called Christadelphians. Well, I hadn't said, he didn't know I was Christadelphian. Well, not a very good one, but, you know, I, I, didn't, um, I hadn't sort of dropped the point, and uh, he wouldn't have got it from Bible Basics nor from uh, NEV Bible, because we didn't use the word in it. Uh, well, I, well, I didn't say anything. I said, oh, yeah, tell me your story there. And he said, well, I've, I've felt from my reading of the Bible, this Bible I was given in 1935 in Methodist Sunday School, I felt that, well, from what I had read, that I shouldn't go to war. And so I said, my, my brothers all went into the army and my dad had fought in the First World War and so my parents, my family rejected me. And he said, I went to the uh, tribunal there in some place in Manchester, and he said, afterwards, he said, I realized that all the other youngsters, they were all Christadelphians. He said, we came out of this tribunal, and he said, they had all their girlfriends and their, their families waiting there to greet them, and I didn't have anybody. And uh, he said, well, I was so embarrassed and ashamed in front of my parents and my family and all that. He said, well, I just, they packed me off to a farm down in the southwest of England, in Devon. And he said, I went down there and I went down there early, actually, to start my service early because I couldn't bear to get back to my family. He said, I was down there on my own with the farmer and then the rest of the conscientious objectors turned up and they were Christadelphians. And he said, you know, for four years, he said, I was there on this farm with his Christadelphians. And he said, we read every day from their Bible companion, their reading planner. But he said, they were on about prophecy all the time and about Russia, this, and the British Empire's going to this, that, or the other. And he said, it sent me crazy. Said, I just couldn't abide it. And uh, he said, the other thing I couldn't abide about it was that on a Sunday, they would break bread and, uh, well, they would ask me to go and stand outside the room, which he said I did, and uh, he said, well, I, I was a Christian. And uh, I was most offended they wouldn't pass me their bit of bread and wine. And uh, he said, well, I used to go to the local village church, and they sort of tut-tutted about that, and uh, he said, oh, I just couldn't get on with them. But he said, um, I remember that four years of reading the Bible with them every day in this barn where we were billeted, and he said, you know, everything they said about doctrine made such perfect sense to me. But he said it was a stuff about prophecy, and it was their attitude about not giving me their bit of bread and wine that uh, turned me totally off them. And he said, uh, well, all my life I have 
you know, I've read the Bible and I, I, I've been interested in it. And um, I, I, you know, I realize now I'm at the end of my life and I wanted a new Bible. And I saw your advertisement. So I thought I would um, get, a, get a new Bible and then you kindly sent me this book. And uh, this is exactly what those people believe. I'm delighted. So, um, well, I baptized him. Um, but, um, and he has fallen asleep in Christ uh, recently. So, I, I don't know quite what the point of that story is, apart from the fact that God knows his people, and uh, God is amazing, is he not? And he's so patient, waited for this guy all these years, um, and put him in contact. And of course, I did tell him that I, I was Christadelphian, but... Um, um, the, the point is that all, all the talk about prophecy forgetting about the stuff about bread and wine but um, all the talk about prophecy you know it can, it can, it can turn people off it can turn people off um, whereas it's the, the basic reality of the gospel and the actual positive teaching of the bible which is what impresses people and uh, I thought I'd just close with that as a testament to God's grace and God's power to work, uh, but also as a little warning that we don't keep on and on about prophecy because not, not everybody finds it uh, grippingly interesting or grippingly attractive or grippingly persuasive. We might. Not everybody does. Everybody's wired differently. Um, my father was like that, young Jewish guy walking down a street in, in London uh, end of the Second World War and, and sees an advert about something like Russia's going to invade Israel. Um, he couldn't care less about a thing but was struck that Jesus isn't God. You guys t say that Jesus isn't God. You know? Uh, and so uh, I, I, I think that uh, you know, prophecy is great but it's, it's not for everybody. So I just thought I'd mention that. God bless you. It was lovely to be with you. <laughs>